Ooh, what a day of auditions I just had. What are you auditioning for? Uh, there's a there's a Hanna Barbera retrospective show being put on, uh, and and they're including some Ruby Spears content too. And they want to do a stunt show for Thunder the Barbarian. They had me auditioning people for Princess Ariel, but it was the darndest thing. I got nothing but a bunch of pale girls with red hair and red wigs. How in the world could they make that mix up? Uh, don't ask me. I guess it's just under the sea. <laughs> there are too many cartoons, but they'll watch them all. The companion James to the sort of hopefully funny cartoon out in podcast land i'm james irish and i'm pembroke w corgi and welcome once again to the pemmy and james kind of sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast and today we've got a special guest on the couch hi my name's justin toter i'm a old friend of james uh, very happy to be here thanks for having me it's great to have you again justin if you those of you uh who, who follow my other podcast, Gaming Street of Regulars, will recognize this voice from our uh, digital wrestling episode. But today we're talking about something less physical, but equally macho. The Ruby Spears production, Thundar the Barbarian. Cue the theme music. Thundar the Barbarian. The year 1994. From out of space comes a runaway planet, hurtling between the Earth and the Moon, unleashing cosmic destruction. Man's civilization is cast in ruin. 2,000 years later, Earth is reborn. A strange new world rises from the old. A world of savagery, super science, and sorcery. But one man bursts his bonds to fight for justice. With his companions, Ukla the Mock and Princess Ariel, he pits his strength, his courage, and his fabulous sun sword against the forces of evil. He is Thundar, the Barbarian. Two things jump out at me right away. First and foremost... I love that expository theme songs do most of our work for us on this podcast. I don't know. I'm just sitting here going dun 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 dun. And secondly, we all lived through 1994. Do you remember any of that happening? About as well as I remember Smash TV being on television. Yeah, mm. thankfully not. <laughs> also, what the heck is super science? <laughs> That's what I've always wondered. Well, the people who might best know are, of course, the creators. And we got to start with Joe Ruby and Ken Spears, who had co-created Scooby-Doo for Hanna-Barbera. But they left the that company after they decided their chances of upward mobility were slim. In uh, 1970s... Oh, I was also going to say, also, uh, I think it was Fred Silverman uh, convinced them into 
making their who was like i think president of abc children television or something convinced them to make their own company because he thought that uh, hannah barbera was stretching themselves too thin and everything was becoming too samey and kind of uh, bloating the uh bloating the programs schedule and tv so he yeah talked them into making their own company and it's like oh great they just ended up making a lot more of the same stuff <laughs> yeah the connection is at the time uh Ruby and Spears were working at ABC at that moment. Yep. Fortunately, Thundar is one of the shows that isn't the same as most of the shows that Ruby Spears makes, which is one of the reasons why I love it. Also, uh, I I didn't watch the show when it originally aired, or if I did, I was too young to remember. But I did watch it when it reran on the USA Cartoon Express, and I watched it with my mom like every day it showed, and she was also really into it and I was really into it. So I have a lot of good memories of bonding with my mom over it to the point to where for Christmas this year, I bought her the DVD box set and I got a call from my dad. Well, no, I got a text from my dad that said, call your mom right now. And I was just like, Holy crap. What the hell did I do? So I called my mom and she was just ecstatic. It's like, you got me my favorite show on DVD. I'm so happy. I told your dad to have you call me right away. Oh, Oh, that's that's so sweet. That's <laughs> great. Now, really quick, back on the note of uh, Ruby Spears and Hanna Barbera, the ir- ironic thing is, in 1981, Ruby Spears was purchased by Taft Broadcasting, which made them a sister company to Hanna Barbera, which is why a lot, a majority of their 80s and early 90s stuff is owned by Warner right now. Yep, pretty much all of their nearly all of their pre-1991 output this one of the exceptions uh, of the of the post-1991 the biggest one i can think of is the Mega Man cartoon right uh mm-hmm. they did a few uh post uh 91 cartoons and the thing is a lot of people seem to be unsure of who actually owns the rights to those shows because uh there's other shows like pigs bird pigs which is weird and uh, sky surfers um, that they did. And people were kind of like, I, you know, I don't know who owns these rights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, Thundar itself himself was created by Joan Ken alongside st- comic book artist, Steve Gerber, best known as the creator of Marvel's unlikely hero, Howard, the duck. Did you just call Steve Gerber an artist? Cause he's a writer. <laughs> I miswrote my notes. He is a writer, not an artist. But yes, he did create Howard the Duck. My humble apologies to the artists behind Howard the Duck. <laughs> <laughs> but as a writer, he also coined the trademark phase, whatever knows fear burns at the man-thing's touch. Whoa. The man-thing. Cool. <laughs> yep. Gerber would also write for G.I. Joe and Transformers and co-won an Emmy for his work on the WB network iterations of Superman and Batman. Yeah, he actually uh, wrote a particular Batman episode, which is actually a lot of people claim to be one of the worst episodes. I don't think it's that bad, but it's the uh, Farmer Brown episode of Batman the Animated Series. Um, where I've seen the worst Batman cartoons. Yeah. I don't think I remember that episode. It's a farmer named Farmer Brown. I mean, because... Even Bruce Tim was like said like on the commentary he's like yeah Steve Gerber just came into my like office at one point he's like hey how about we 
have a villain. His name is Farmer Brown, and he's a farmer, but he's evil, and he makes genetically mutated farm animals. And we're just like, uh, okay. <laughs> and the obligatory uh, hot farmer's daughter is super strong. Yep. Beef um, steroids. But, gotcha. Yeah, their explanation is beef steroids is what she is how she's powerful, seemingly. Um that episode's actually not bad. I I, I love Batman the Animated Series, but I can there's far worse episodes like Batman in my basement, to be honest. Um But uh Steve Gerber did write my favorite episode of Transformers, which was season three episode Web World, where uh where they take Galvatron to a mental asylum. Long overdue. It's it's like it's a it's a thinly disguised satire on uh, on mental health facilities in a Transformer cartoon. It's kind of genius. My favorite part is they like put Galvatron in like an arts and crafts like set uh, place. He does arts and crafts to try to help him. They say fix his mind by fixing something else, and instead he, in the middle of this facility, he builds a gun and starts shooting at the patients. Uh, wow. But, yeah. <laughs> okay. But I'm getting off topic, sorry. That's fine, that's fine. Like I keep saying, this is an FC3 podcast. We are fueled by tangents. <laughs> well, I will throw, I actually think Steve Gerber was just doing a lot of writing for Ruby Spears in general, because he was also a head writer of uh, Goldie Golden Action Jack. I have not seen that yet. I know it exists, but... I did a review of it on my YouTube channel, Artificial Orange Studios, a cartoon catastrophe episode on Goldie Gold and Action Jack. It's, it's a show. <laughs> yeah, let's leave it at that. It's not the worst thing they made, but it's not the best thing they made. I'll put it that way. So let's talk about our cast of characters. Specific, you know, Thunder, Ariel, and Ukla. Oh, should we uh, mention uh, one other creator behind this? Uh, comic book legend, Jack Kirby. Yes. Oh, oh, of course. Uh, Justin, you'd actually be pretty well equipped to tell us a little about Kirby. Yeah, I mean, Jack Kirby is one of the legends in the comic book industry. I mean, he uh, co-created so many iconic characters with Stan Lee. I mean, uh, he helped Stan Lee launch Fantastic Four, the X-Men, Thor, the Hulk, Iron Man. Uh, then um, he went over to DC and he uh, created the New Gods, giving us uh, Darkseid, Mr. Miracle, and many other characters that are still popular influential to this day so he was quite the creator and he worked on uh the production designer for this show now apparently he didn't design the main characters that was done by uh comic book writer artist alex toth but he designed all the other characters on the show so like all the bad guys and everything you know the evil wizards and stuff you know the monsters the mutants that was all kirby and uh, you can definitely see, if you're familiar with Kirby's work in the comics, you can definitely see the influence. You can definitely recognize some of his touches in the stuff you see on the show. I'm surprised to hear you didn't have a design credit with the main characters because uh, Thundar is really rocking the, one of those Jack, Jack Kirby hairstyles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very Commandy-esque. Yeah. See, 
Though Alex Toth, uh, he's uh, responsible for creating a space ghost uh, for mm-hmm. Hanna-Barbera. And as amongst other uh, 60s superhero sci-fi types. Yeah. See, And seemingly Steve Gerber was not a fan of Ookla. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Gerber, at the very least, did not name Ookla. I, no. I discovered this in my research that uh, fellow show writer for Thundar, Martin Pascoe, suggested it to Gerber as they walked past the UCLA campus. And uh, Pascoe came up with a phonetic pronunciation of UCLA. <laughs> I, I remember, like, I think it was in some sort of interview Gerber mentioned not caring much for Ookla because he said uh, he said like the network or someone pressured them into having a Chewbacca character and he didn't want one but mm. but that could also explain as much as I love which I, I'm going to say sorry Gerber you're wrong because Ookla's great um, I, it, there is a lot of episodes where, where he's not treated that well and I wonder if Gerber's like taking out his mm. frustrations with them it's a possibility and we will encounter that in the two episodes we have uh singled out for this for this podcast but i want to talk about uh, ukla's voice actor henry uh corden yes best known as the second voice of fred flintstone as well as the hillbilly bear patriarch paw rug and numerous incidental hanna-barbera roles what's fun what's funny about uh, henry corden is even his normal voice kind of sounds like fred flintstone because even before he like before he even was voicing Fred Flintstone, the first episode of Johnny Quest, he's like, he's uh, voicing this nameless villain, and it's just when you hear him, he's like, God, that sounds like Fred Flintstone. <laughs> wow. And Thundar himself is voiced by Roger, uh, I'm sorry, Robert Ridgely, no stranger to voice acting himself, having portrayed animated versions of Tarzan and Flash Gordon, making Thundar right in his wheelhouse. And he would go on to voice Strawberry Shortcake antagonist, the peculiar purple pie man of Porcupine Peak. Yes, that's part of the signature. That is the best part of that show. I'm just going to say that is him. Having a daughter, I rewatched, I had to watch a lot of Strawberry Shortcake, even the old ones. And I was just like, I like this guy. This guy's cool. Also, he uh, was the voice of uh, Pitfall in the uh, Ruby Spears Pitfall Harry cartoon um, for, oh, okay. uh, for uh, Saturday Supercade. All right. Yeah. He was also yeah, one of, on, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Based on the Activision game. Yep. He was also one of the two voice actors that's, that's in the god-awful Filmation cartoon Mush. So that's a unfortunate oh, thing. Oh, yeah. We'll be dealing with that when we want to torture ourselves. It's the second. And Justin, we won't have you along for that. Be thankful. It's one, of the, <laughs> it's one of the worst cartoons I've ever watched. Someone at Filmation's like, let's make MASH for children. And, oh, it's bad. Ooh, genius idea. Genius. It's, it's bad. Also, let's only hire two voice actors and they're male and have two female characters. So you can already imagine how that works. Now, rounding out our heroic trio is uh, Nellie Bellflower, voicing Princess Ariel. She's best known today not for her voice work, but as a producer, specifically for Finding Neverland, which earned her an Oscar nomination. Nice. Very cool. 
and uh, narration, when appropriate, was provided by radio and television veteran Dick Tufeld. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I think you are. Well, Tufel is human. Oh, dear. <laughs> That's one pun so far. So, overall, 21 episodes were released of Thunder of the Barbarian over the course of two seasons, which, for a format with as much turnover as Saturday morning animation, that isn't too bad. No, not really. Uh, even though season two only had, like, eight episodes, if I remember right. Right. Yeah. And Thundar not only paved the way for future sci-fi fantasy heroics, notably Filmation's Mattel toy tie-ins, one of which we covered in our previous episode, but is well-remembered for creative designs and stunning background work. The background art in this thing is amazing. Mm-hmm. I have to agree. When I was re-watching the episodes today, because it's been a long time since I've watched the cartoon, um, like Pembroke, I... When it was first aired, I was really young. I didn't really see it until it was rerun, like on like USA Network when I was growing up. But I was amazed by the detail in the backgrounds. It's very detailed, you know, like the, the post-apocalyptic world, you know, the ruins, even stuff like even simple like when they're walking into a room. There's a lot of detail. Yeah, and I just like how they have, like, well, random cars are just broken on the side, and just, there's so much. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Really gives a dark, foreboding atmosphere that I I just really like. It's, I just, there's so much atmosphere in this show that really helps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of love was put into this, and uh, it comes as no surprise to me that as far as both Joe Ruby and Ken Spears were concerned, Thundar was their favorite project good choice so shall we dive into the first episode sure yeah all right up first is mind doc the mind menace how's that for alliteration (laughs) (laughs) and i don't mind (laughs) (laughs) the villains had some really uh creative names on on (laughs) mind So our story begins in Cape Canaveral, Florida, and what's left of NASA. Or as the sign on the building just says, center. (laughs) Right. Mm. And we know something is afoot because a massive submarine that looks like a cross between a Jawa Sandcrawler and Red October makes (laughs) landfall and dispenses Mindox warriors, which are quasi-human henchmen with very aggressive-looking features this was what clued me into the Kirby connection before I had even seen any credits to the series because they would fit right in on Apocalypse. Oh, they totally, totally would. Absolutely. Yeah, and Thundar's just like, <laughs> they're from wizards. It's like, well, what do they want with that? Evil, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, I love, that's what I love. It's like, what is their attention? It, but it's evil. <laughs> I, I, I love how theatrical, like, Thundar's voice actor is he he's kind of got the same tone for the voice but whenever he's always over the top whenever it's like delivering anything mm-hmm. and it's great one of the things I liked in this opening the first opening here when they see that the minions are going into the ruins uh it's like you know Thunder of course says that charges in and then of course Ukla charges in and it, it's like and Princess Arrow's trying to like say like wait wait let's not rush and then she just goes 
I would vote it again. It's like when I was rewatching this, I, re- I, I really enjoyed – she had some really good quips in one-liners, Princess Ariel. It's just like she's got like a good like penchant for th- that kind of like humor. I really like that. Yeah. Hmm, a snarky princess. I wonder where they got the idea for that. <laughs> but but it's a it's a good it's a good fit. I mean, it lets her be comic relief without being uh, an orco <laughs> or being Ukla in some of the episodes of this show. Hmm. Unfortunately, um, but I, I think we did forget to mention that that there are some obvious inspirations with this show. <laughs> Oh, yes. There's a lot of inspiration from both Conan and Star Wars. And maybe a little a little bit of uh, a little bit of uh, Mad Max in there for post-apocalyptic. True. True. But mostly, yeah, it's a lot of Star Wars and a lot of like Conan the Barbarian. Thus, why Thundar has his sun sword, Mm -hmm. which is totally not a lightsaber and not making similar sounding sounds. <laughs> yeah. And one other thing to mention is that um, Princess Ariel, when she was growing up, read a lot of, uh, because she was like uh, adopted by a, a wizard. He had like a vast library of like what, what the world was like before the apocalypse. So she has a lot of knowledge about how you think about things, old earth and, and certain bits of history to, you know, inform Thunder and Ukla, of course, you have no idea about that stuff. You know, it's like, cause they, you know, this, that happened. It was like, as I said, this is like 2000 years after the, the apocalypse. So it's like, so she provides important like knowledge and expeditions at times because of that in, in her background. And it's good because it, it allows her to give exposition without it being too in your face or too like mm-hmm. blatant. Um, though it also sometimes brings really interesting ideas because uh, of things that we're just, common knowledge to us that we would think would be normal things for like anybody like uh like the fact that you know she mentions space and thunder's yeah. like space what is this space yeah he's like he has no concept of, of like you know of outer space <laughs> at all that there's anything like beyond the earth <laughs> i think to a certain degree ariel was probably glad he at least understands personal space if not by name yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also i i like I think my favorite part of the first fight scene that they have is like when one of the like one of the villains starts shooting and Ukla just punches his fist right through the freaking gun. I, I laughed so hard. <laughs> he just punches the flamethrower weapon like just like and just just right through it. <laughs> oh, it's such a good visual. Yeah. Really quickly back to Ariel's exposition, I wanna point out that even though Thundar doesn't know a lot of these concepts he is incredibly respectful of ariel's knowledge and eager to learn from her that makes him one of the most positive role models i can think of for saturday morning of this era mm-hmm. with the exception of the occasional times where it'll be like women or something like that in some mm-hmm. episodes well nobody's perfect right yeah. or could be a normal 80s man no, i'm just kidding sorry mm. <laughs> Yeah, he, he, that'll happen. But then again, that uh, that's kind of par for the course in the '80s. So, yeah. all things considered, that's pretty progressive for a barbarian, right? A barbarian that surprisingly doesn't kill very many people. Mm. 
Oh, that's also the eighties for you. Yeah. Yeah. This and the seventies. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think they did the best they could considering the limit of a, the limit of violence you could get away with in the eighties on television with this show. So, yeah. So of the henchmen, General Zoa is the only one who puts up even a remotely decent fight, but that's still not enough. And the the henchfolk run with their proverbial tails between their legs. I, I I do like his logic though. It's like you've just it's like you've caved it in to where because he uh, caves in the uh, building after they run away to try to get rid of Thundar, and it's like, but we didn't get what. Mind Doc once, and he's like, Mind Doc's waited for years. He can wait a lit longer. <laughs> I love how um, Princess Sarah goes to, to the to the mooks. Let me show you the door, and she creates this like little mini tornado, and like to to like toss them out of the building. It's like that. That I love that little bit. It's like a <laughs> reminder from the princess. Uh, I I I love how like her magic is both like. It, it can be like severely underpowered and severely overpowered depending on the situation. Mm-hmm. I know it's that too. But so what's they, all this fighting over? Uh, sorry, okay. I was just going to say they. I just wanted to mention that I don't ever feel like they. Well, they there's some cases where I feel like it is a little overpowered. It never feels like they never feel like they can just solve an episode with her magic. So that's at least a good thing on a writing standpoint. True. Yeah, they don't. They don't treat her as a deus ex machina with her, with her, with her mag- the magical ability she has. So, what is all this fighting over? Well, Mindog's henchmen are trying to get into the lair of the ice people, and it turn and we our heroes eventually do find these ice people. They're frozen alive uh, as part of an exper- a space experiment. And Thundar wakes them up with the su- the sun sword, and Ariel brings them up to speed while one of the scientists faints simply from seeing Ukla. Ukla is such a lovely big good boy. <laughs> <laughs> with such a lovely lion-like mane of hair. And voice. And big protruding fangs with no lips to conceal them. Mm-hmm. And really muscles tell. upon muscles, and Some yeah, I might faint too. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta really feel bad for these 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 scientists. They were cryogenically frozen like for two thousand years, and they wake up and like you know like <laughs> the world is so much different. <laughs> it's like because like, like, like one was like, "How long we were asleep?" And Arrow's like, oh, "Roughly about two thousand years." <laughs> It's like, that's a lot to take in. Yep, uh, I think they handle it pretty good, all things considered. They're also yeah. lucky that Thundar merely s- stabbing the freaking machine didn't kill them. Right. <laughs> you can almost like, see Ariel like Thundar, like like almost. She doesn't say it. she look like like the animation makes it motion like she's like trying to like Thundar. Don't do. Uh, damn it. <laughs> also, I I, I want to know who's responsible for designing that the Mel scientist. I think his name was like Doctor Harris or Professor Harris or something. But he's got like these itty bitty beady looking eyes. Like he yeah. looks like he's seen some. <laughs> he stuff. looks like yeah, he he's seen some stuff, man. <laughs> well, two thousand years of REM sleep, probably. <laughs> I, I have to say, though, they handle this pretty well, considering they come out and 
he's like the only one that's like, everything's in ruins. And then it's like, well, that's <laughs> gotta go. <laughs> so meanwhile, the war machine reaches Mindock's island hideout where Mindock himself is waiting. And Mindock is voiced by our old friend, Alan Oppenheimer. I love that guy. Yeah. <laughs> Good old Skeletor. Good old Warpath and Transformers. Now, Zoa is forced to gaze into Mindock's mirror, which is really just the faceplate of Mindock's helmet. And he sees that the scientists have been freed. And then Mindock traps his minions in miniature form in a in a little crystal ball type thing. You know, I do have to say, uh, one of the interesting things about, like, this whole, like, you know, you can't do violence. It's like, you can't kill people. You can't, like, physically harm people. It's like, okay, we'll s- put them in this this crystal ball forever. A fate that is worse than death, you may say. <laughs> They're certainly going to starve to death in that thing. Yeah. It's like, is yeah. this really better? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even later in the episode, when 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 they they find him, even Thunder is like, they didn't even they didn't deserve that kind of fate. It's like even Thunder is like like horrified that what he did to him. <laughs> yeah. By the way, Mind Doc, let's talk about how OP he is. Oh yeah. my goodness, we're gonna see him just come up with new powers as the plot demands from this point forward. Yeah. Because, yeah, he, he takes all his henchmen, puts them in a crystal ball, and then just goes over to the center himself and teleports the ice people, so to speak, to his fortress like it's nothing. And it's like, why'd you even bother sending your goons? Right? <laughs> he shows up, he snatches them, and then tells Thunder them to, like, you know, don't even dare try to come and rescue them. But of course, your hero's going to be like, nah, screw that. <laughs> Thunder's like, yeah, it's, it's like telling a ki- telling a four year old kid not to eat a cookie that you just set on a table. Mm-hmm. there's like, heck with that, we're coming. And how? Well, well Thundar slices slices an old space capsule in half, and they use it as a raft. Which again, this gets into one of the things I love about this show. I don't know how well that would float exactly, but I I do because I don't think that's the part of it that floats, so to speak. But I do love how they use. Take um, at the time modern day stuff that's in ruins and find useful yeah. ways to use them within the plot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So at his lair, Mind Doc promises the scientist protection in return to building him a robot body for his brain. Now, at this point, I want to mention that the male scientist sounds like he has a vice grip on his family jewels. <laughs> <laughs> I'd insert an appropriate bit of dialogue here, but I'm saving that for the other episode. Because <laughs> I, I found something even more ridiculous there. <laughs> well, uh, you know, if you were frozen for that long, it'd probably feel like that, too. Uh, arguably, yeah. They're not, not fa- they're not finished falling out yet! <laughs> uh... This leads to one of my favorite things in the episode. As as they're getting approaching his his lair, they get attacked by what Thunder calls fire whales. And these fire whales are crazy awesome. I love this whole sequence. 
they, they look great. I, I like that they have like weird, like, uh, oh shoot. Um, I can't remember what they're called. The, the things that come out of, uh, the like, thing you look, uh, look through in a submarine. Yeah. Like periscope. Just, periscope. Like periscope looking things just poking out of their head for whatever reason. Should, yeah. I guess and the fire. flames come out of that and they've got like, um, like narwhal horns and stuff. And they, they, they look like they're like, uh, they look really like, menacing and everything it's and one of the and one of my favorite bits is like uh one charges and ukla charges at it and they and they headbutt each other ukla just freaking headbutt one of them right (laughs) knocks it it out oh so good also i want to point out that uh thundar like twice twice ariel gets eaten by one of these things yeah um I, I love that, like, the first time she gets eaten, and Thunder opens it up with yes. his bare hands in physical strength, gets her out, only for one to immediately come and swallow them again. Yeah, it falls with both. the next one swallows them both, and he has to use this. He he hits it inside with the sun sword to make him spit, spit the two of them out. Yeah. <laughs> now, I don't know if this is intentional or not, but when the first fire whale is about to eat Ariel... She doesn't even sound that scared. Thundar sounded more scared about it than she did. Actually. Yeah. Maybe she's just used to this. She says, yeah, Thundar's going to save me. Well, living the life they live, it wouldn't surprise me either. That might be the most upset I think I recall hearing Thundar because he's like, Ariel, no. <laughs> well, no, he gets pretty upset in the next episode we watch, but we'll get to that later. Yeah. And because Ukla got knocked so silly by headbutting the one firewall, they have to, they have to, Ariel and Thundar have to drag him to shore <laughs> outside the base because he's all out of it for a bit. <laughs> Just what I wanted around my neck, a wet mock. That was a great line. What an interesting smell you've discovered, princess. Wait, mm-hmm. wrong franchise. <laughs> well, excuse me, princess. Also wrong franchise. <laughs> Though, interesting fact, I, I, if I remember right, Han Solo actually said that before Link. Definitely. So. <laughs> so, as our heroes enter the lair, Mindock resorts to hypnosis, yet another new power, mm-hmm. to get the scientists to do his bidding. And and this and around here is where Thundar finds the fate of Zoa in Mindock's posh personal quarters. And they get cornered by the Mind Wizard, who entangles them with snakes through his magic mirror face. At this point, I realize Mindock needs to be nerfed for player versus player. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, this also shows how badass Thundar is, because even with someone as overpowered as Mindock, he's still going to win. So mm-hmm. Thundar is just this awesome. But uh, I also want to say, making snakes come out of your visor, that's some nightmare fuel for me, because I am afraid of snakes. Yeah, that's, if, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty uh, scary stuff for uh, a Saturday morning kid show. <laughs> snakes, why'd it have to be snakes? <laughs> so our heroes soon share Zoa's fate in miniature imprisonment, and uh, I think this is the point where, where the show takes a commercial break. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. But not us. With the robot finished, Mindock waxes poetic on his origins as he slowly reveals his true form, which is 
the least detailed brain I've seen in animation. Probably for the better, because I, I when I was a it's not as much a problem now, but when I was a kid, whenever they draw like really detailed brains in cartoon, it freaked me out for some reason. Well, you must have hated Krang. <laughs> it was it took of... me a few episodes. Captain Ian is also another case where like, I, I had to take a couple episodes before I got used to it, but it's still kind of like, ooh, gross. <laughs> the brain had kind of like a green glow to it, if I, if I remember right. It was kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it's part of like, I don't know, whatever radiation or something has caused it to live this long. Yeah. You just mentioned being in a terrible accident that damaged his body. Yeah. I wonder how he got his brain in there to begin with. I mean, you can't just take out your own brain and put it into something. Yeah, yeah that's probably speculation best left for another time. Because I'm more concerned with how this robot that is built by scientists who just got there that day that somehow this is perfectly attuned to the control hatches of Mindock's most powerful warship. You know, I think he gave him an, I think he gave him designs to work with or something, or who knows. Well, then again, he was controlling them with hypnosis at that point, so he could have had them making it to his specifications. Fair. Very fair. Which, uh, I, I think he needs a better design choice. Hmm. <laughs> Krang's body's looking not so weird now. <laughs> That's still a weird design. Mm -hmm. But then Mindock gives uh, gives the uh, the ice people uh, a present, which is Thundar in the Thundar Ariel and Ukla stuck in the crystal. And then he's off to conquer. But at this time, the heroes escape by striking their spherical prison in the same spot at the same time. And the force of of the ensuing explosion snaps the scientists out of their hypnosis. As well as our heroes out of their prison, which, mm -hmm. you know what? Yeah, I'll, I'll accept that as the explanation for that. It's makes, it makes reasonable sense. At least cartoon sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. It, it's, it's good enough to where my, my uh, suspension of disbelief will go. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So after the heroes are brought up to speed, we catch up with Mind Doc menacing the ruins of a nearby city and its inhabitants. And Thundar and Co. waste no time trying to break into his warship and engaging Mind Doc in combat. And do a pretty good job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they pick up the pace in, at this point. Which uh, also gets into why like robots are so great and old kids shows because like Thundar freaking cuts off his arms and his legs. Like it's oh, nothing. Yeah. yeah. Thundar mm -hmm. slices and dices uh, up that robot with, with like no problem. You know, he's all like, I'm going to destroy you. Thundar. You can't stop me. And it's like cut slice, 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 slice. Now reality ensues with this battle sequence because uh, when mind doc engages Thundar in battle, he relinquishes the controls and, and this is basically what seals Mindoc's fate. And knocking Mindoc into said controls just makes matters worse. The heroes have to bail out before they reach orbit. Wherever that is! <laughs> <laughs> Which, I, I just want to point out that these horses made a drop from near near orbit <laughs> into <laughs> water and survived! I was wondering the same thing, Pembroke. 
I was like, how high up were they? How could they survive that? <laughs> but it's a cartoon. It's like, you gotta roll with it. <laughs> well, that's also just action movie logic, too. Because, right. like, there's so many action movies where people survive just by falling into the water. And it's like, actually, that would have probably been just as bad, if not worse, than hitting, like, ground. <laughs> that is one thing the real Ghostbusters cartoon did get right. Yeah. But at the same time, I think at least Ookla's horse could be excused as being more durable because that is not a normal horse. No, that is a big horse. He's a big boy. Yeah, I forget what the name of it is, but it's like one of it's like one of the mutate animals that live in the in this uh, post-apocalyptic world. I do love a lot of the mutated animal designs they come up with in this show. They're really good. Yeah, yeah, they're very. Oh, cool. Yeah, we're gonna see some real winners in the next episode. But, but yep. to get there, we first have to get through this. So, and Mindok is stuck in space in orbit for the rest of his well immortal life. Which, holy shit, that's a terrible punishment. No kidding. Yeah. The scientists, or ice people, whichever you want to call them, decide to help the nearby city get back up and running, and then maybe they'll start some exploring themselves. Our heroes bid them farewell, and the adventure continues! Mm-hmm. Besides, it's not like the scientists have much else they can do in this post-apocalyptic no. world. No. But I, I, but yeah, this was this episode really holds up well. I wish I could say that for the second one, but well, we'll get to that after these messages. Thundar the Barbarian will return after these messages. On the next Pemmy and James show, after his long stint at Warner Brothers, Frizz Freeling almost stumbled into the second act of his career in animation via the opening credits sequence of a jewel heist film starring Peter Sellers. The resulting Pink Panther short subjects won Freeling and partner David DePatie an Academy Award and produced the last major gasp of the era of theatrical short subjects. In two weeks, we're thinking pink, baby. We now return with Thundar the Barbarian. Now, before we get to Master of the Stolen Sun Sword, I would be remiss if I didn't ask if you guys had any final thoughts about Mind Doc. It's a good example of what I like about this show, is it's got a very kind of kind of old school comic book esque feel to it. It's very very pulpy, I guess is a word for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had remembered this was one of the few episodes that I remembered like off the top of my head when Ether brought up that you were gonna do Thundar. Right? Cause I was like, what's like it's like and it, it that was one of the this was one of the ones that popped in my head and it definitely held up. It was a lot of fun. Very interesting plot and it's too bad the show didn't run longer because it would be interesting to see like if they had gotten a chance to like come back and see like how the scientists may have been able to help rebuild civilization a bit in the area in, in like a future episode or something. Yeah. I also kind of feel like this is a, one of the things I always say about Thundar is I feel like it was one of those cases where it's a show that was a little bit ahead of its time. Cause I feel like the show probably would have lasted longer and been more popular if it was just a few years later when that big toy cartoon thing kind of boomed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it stop me from having uh, Thundar action figures, though. <laughs> Naturally, although there was a board game, I should get that at some point. Yeah, I read about that when I was looking up info on the show. I was like, I had no idea. 
wonder how much that goes for on eBay. Probably a lot. Can't be as much as that in hu- as that in in humanoid we looked at. <laughs> yeah, decompose. Like if you want a complete version of him, it's like two hundred and fifty dollars. If you want one with his head missing, a hundred and fifty dollars. Yikes! Yeah. So onward and forward into season two and the master of the stolen sun sword. Before we get into this episode, I want to say that season one of Thundar is really good. Season two's kind of hit or miss, and I'm not sure what exactly happened with it, but a lot of the episodes feel really messy and feel like it feels like they had like three a lot. There's a lot of episodes that feel like they had three or four different plot ideas and they shove it into one episode and it feels like kind of all over the place and this is one of the episodes that has that kind of feeling to it admittedly it's not the worst thing i've ever seen but it is definitely on the uneven side but we'll get into that as we go forward because we got we got to start by talking about this how this episode grabs your attention right away with red rain and red lightning it's yeah. called a nega storm, and there's no more explanation than that. Right. I, I love the whole concept. It's like it's like because Aaron's like, we gotta get cover. This is a this is a it's a negative storm, and then of course uh, we find out later about the negative lightning as well, which goes with the negative storm, and uh, which has uh, some very bad uh, <laughs> side effects. But uh, it's a cool visual: the the red rain and the red lightning. This is the closest we can get to having blood in this cartoon show. Let's go for it. (laughs) So, en route to shelter, they find a hotel and a group of wealthy-looking humans riding camels. Maybe they came from a zoo. It's possible. There's certainly plenty of zoos around this area, which we have yet to officially establish in the cartoon. But, uh, you know, before... Before Thundar, Ariel, and Ukla have a chance to react to that, Mosquito Hordak swoops in. Mm. Actually, you just gave me a random interesting thought. Like, if there was, like, a post-apocalyptic future, all these animals that are in zoos would just get out and reproduce everywhere. The animal ecology ecology would be, like, all over the freaking place. Yeah. Yeah, not to mention with all the... It does explain a lot. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Anyways, Mosquito Hordak. <laughs> yeah, it's actually a sky dragon. And a wizard is riding it to assault the trader caravan to seek the tribute he believes is due to him. This is Yando, the baddie of the week, and I keep wanting to call him Yandu. <laughs> well, at least you're not calling him Yoda. Yeah. See, Though uh, he's also voiced by Michael Bell, which is uh, blatantly obvious because every time he talks, it's like, God, All-Star got pissed. <laughs> It sounds like All-Star from the Snorks or Mark from uh, Speed Buggy. But uh, other roles Mel, uh, Michael Bell is uh, well-known for is uh, Lance in the original Transformers and uh, Quacker Jack in Darkwing Duck. Because it's playtime! <laughs> <laughs> Don't you know television rots the brain? <laughs> oh, no, wait. He, he said that about video games. Yeah. Oh. But we're getting, but we are tangenting again. Now I'm going to insert this line of dialogue from Yando. By the ancient masters of Abracadabra, let 
Let my vengeance be done! (laughs) 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 The writers were clearly having a good time here. I I kind of like... This is one of the concepts I do like in this episode, though, because I kind of like the idea of someone being a wizard through parlor magic rather than, like, actual magic. I think that's actually an amusing concept. Um, Though, I, I... I do have to question how much of this is parlor magic when that like string of handkerchiefs can like wrap around people and have like almost a mind of its yeah. own when he throws it out. Gotta agree with that. Yeah, Thundar halts that very trick and challenges the wizard while Ukla and Ariel handle the henchmen. But just as Thundar is about to duel the wizard, he's struck by the negative lightning. Which, uh, to his credit, he took that shot pretty good. <laughs> he got better than that no- car we saw a bit before that. Yeah, he got knocked unconscious off screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Princess Ariel freaks out big time when she sees it get like hit by the lightning. He's <laughs> worried that he might. He's like dead. It's like you can see the. Re- it's like she's like very relieved when he like wakes up because he was like he was like out like a light. Yep. Best night sleep I've ever gotten. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh-oh, bad side effect. It has damaged the sun sword. Oh, no. Now, I should mention that as we watch the villains escape, we see the Hollywood Hills, which firmly establishes our location once and for all for this episode. Mm-hmm. Post-apocalyptic Beverly Hills. Yeah. Yeah. Ariel We're- especially mentions that, that where they are. And of course, Thunder has no idea what the what the significance of Beverly Hills is. Of course, <laughs> when they're when they're like hanging, when they're like eating with the the villagers. See, which now everybody's a Beverly's hillbilly. Yeah, because he's like she mentions that, and he's like he's like he's like I'm more worried about fixing the sun sword, you know. <laughs> I, I the. the... That is kind of the funniest thing about this episode is as soon as the Sun Sword is messed up, Thundar like kind of devolves into like a pissed off child. Because <laughs> the whole episode he's just like he's like, F you people who gave us food. <laughs> and it's like, Thundar, we need to go. And it's like, go where? <laughs> it's like, Jesus, dude, chill. Yeah. It, it also gets into a kind of plot cliche that I really hate, though, which mm-hmm. is like Despite us literally seeing him pry open the mouth of a firewell in the previous episode, Thundar is suddenly rendered, like, practically useless without his sun sword suddenly. Because it's like he's, he he has to have yeah. Ukla and uh, Ariel later help him fight the this giant bug, and it's just like, uh, dude, he was, like, super strong earlier. Yeah. Or any other episode. It's like, now mm-hmm. it's like, oh no, my sun sword, I can't do crap. <laughs> and even then, like, he, even while that bug has him, he's just whining about the sun sword the whole time. <laughs> yeah, that, that started to get annoying. I, I was like, kind of like, unnecessarily nerfed Thundar a little bit too much with the, with the sun sword not working, not, not at full, full power, and, and them questing to try to, like, recharge it. Which I got some questions about because it's like uh, Ariel's like we need it's okay Thundar we can recharge it at a power pool there's one not far from here and I'm like how does Thundar not know about this how long right. has he had this sword and also very convenient that there happened to be a place nearby that they could recharge the sun sword <laughs> and also that she knows about it 
Yep. But uh, Yando uh, also seemingly knows, and he, whenever he has uh, he has Thundar fight said giant insect, he steals the Sun Sword so that he can get it powered up for himself. Now, I should mention that uh, while all this is going on, Ariel also observes that something about the wizard's magic doesn't seem right. And this combined with the other clues dropped from the wizard's vocabulary and his choice of spells, you know, the pieces are starting to come together. They're dropping more clues in this part of the episode than the entirety of an average Scooby-Doo cartoon. Not to mention there was a villager that was like, I don't know, he seems pretty powerful. And they're like, yeah, this is our scholar. <laughs> he knows all about Yando's powers. It's like, hmm. Hmm. Hmm, indeed. And we get another clue because where Yando is uh, waxing about uh, getting the sun sword for himself, it's Hollywood's Magic Palace. It's clearly a theater for stage magic. Mm-hmm. Yep. Knowing that Yando would also be going to the power pool, everybody goes to the power pool to have a pool party. I mean, yeah. power up the sun sword. <laughs> yeah, at the Griffith Observatory. Mm-hmm. That's a Another. real life place, too. Mm-hmm. Though its astrological observation equipment is long gone by the year 3994. Yes. It, it, this is one of the cool things about the show is how it does fit in like real life like places, though still wrecked like uh there's an episode with the alamo in it and there's an episode where they fight the statue of liberty <laughs> mm-hmm. i remember another one where they they were at like mount rushmore as yeah. well it's like so they visit a lot of like 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 famous like landmarks just like you know altered or messed up because of the apocalypse so team thundar had raced there hoping to catch yandu but they're too late they arrive just as yandu is recharging the sun sword yeah, and then he goes to try to uh, take out Thundar and the heroes with the Sun Sword. It's like, ha-ha, it's mine now! It, it doesn't work out too well for him, because uh, <laughs> Thundar gets it back. Eventually. I do like, though, that he was like, Stop running! Stop running, you cowardly savage! And Thundar's like, what fun would that be? Yeah. <laughs> Unusual funny quip from Thundar himself. He does have them occasionally, like... In the first episode, there's a scene where he has, like, a black pearl that protects him from magic, and the wizard, like, tries to get hit him with it, and he's like, give me, and it does nothing, and he's like, give me the pearl or else, and Thunder's like, or else your magic won't work again? (laughs) (laughs) So, in the fracas, Nyando winds up causing a cave-in and drops the sun sword in his escape attempt. And Thundar discovers his connection with the Sun Sword is severed after he picks it back up. Ariel says he has to charge it himself to restore the connection. And I got whiplash from how quick that plot point was resolved. I also got questions because yeah. it's like if if you have to charge it in order to be the owner of it, how did Thundar get to be an owner of it in the first place without knowing this? Yeah, because even though they didn't. To my to my knowledge, they never did like a origin episode showing how you know they all came together and everything. How he got this, he actually got the sun sword. Um, yeah, he he didn't have to do that when he got it. When he got a hold of the sun sword, he could use it. So yeah, it's it's yeah. I like you. I had some issues with that. I'm like that. That could have been a cool plot point throughout the rest of the episode. Like 
normally you would expect him not to get his weapon back until like the climax, but this is like like the like the mid we're just before the the, the final act and he gets it back. So it's like yeah. It, it, like I said, this feels like it's got multiple plots shoved together, but I'll I'll get to that more to that later. But uh, yeah, it's like I I, I just feel like if they would have just had Thundar know, he's just like, oh wait, I gotta recharge it, and he did it. It would be like it feel like at least less questionable plot wise. In fact, yeah. Ariel has to tell him to do that. Just raises a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. Now Yando has a plan B. Offensing Epe, he intends to have struck by negative lightning to make a negasword. Oh, I've got problems here. Oh, do tell. We've already established how destructive this negative lightning is, and Yando is handling this metal rod without any insulation, any protection, and we know Yando by this point is just a normal human with no enhancements. He should be dead. And maybe he's got insulation in his gloves. And also the, also the fact that he keeps it powered with just a, like a, a, a simple battery. That was charged by the lightning. Yeah. <laughs> There's some logic there. <laughs> some. A little bit. <laughs> I, I'm with you, James. I thought it was a cool idea that he was like, well, screw it. I'm going to make my own cool sword. I was like, I, I was like, yeah, and then I was like, um, <laughs> that, I don't know how that works. <laughs> Uses some Frankenstein logic. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely some kind of yeah. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I do like that they at least kept it hooked to the battery the whole time. I think that was at least yeah. kind of works with his uh, aesthetic, for lack of better words, right. Actually, I think it would have been better if instead of using the lightning, he just had a he just took the rape rapier and or not rapier, but the fencing sword and just attached it to a battery and left it at that. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure what technically you could describe the sword as. I just assigned Epe at random, just because I wanted to say Epe. <laughs> it's definitely a jousting sword. It's not a rapier or right. a sword sword, so it's not a broadsword or anything. Right. So back in Beverly Hills, the battle is back on quicker than Thundar expects. And at this point, we I notice the wires and the battery attached to the Sky Dragon. And we, we watch Ariel and Ukla dispatch the henchmen yet again, mm-hmm. including Ukla trapping one with the hood of a broken down convertible. <laughs> I also... I also like how that battery looks like it's just taped to the Sky Dragon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, that's some, that's some strong tape. He must have got that, uh, what is it, flex tape. <laughs> that's a lot oh, of damage. Oh, it's secret weapon. Duct tape. That's a lot of damage. Sorry. Oh, yeah. But uh, the, due to the negative power of his negative sword, it actually cannot, it uh, repels the Sun Sword, so to speak. They cause a, quite an explosion when they clash. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, th- and this battle goes all over town, and it mm-hmm. ends up with Thundar cliffhanging off, off a ruined skyscraper, and that's when Ariel sees the wires. Which I love this scene, because Ariel, Ariel's like, cut the wires to the battery, and Thundar's like, 
battery and she's just like just do it right <laughs> he, does, he does it and i'm just like wow as a someone who works tech support i'm gonna remember that next time it's like they're like what just do it i'm sure that'll magically make every person who calls me know what to do yeah i like that bit too that was really funny she's like just do it and he just suddenly knows okay so with his weapon depowered, Yando retreats, and now the heroes pursue. And in the process, Ariel confirms my expectation that Yandu is using old stage magic. It's basically like an evil version of Penn and Teller and David Copper. Right. <laughs> I actually like that. I like that image in my head. Penn survived the like apocalypse and... 2,000 years and has gone mad and he's become this <laughs> criminal villain in a gunbar. So, we get a, a very brief haunted house sequence mm -hmm. and then Yandu throws some more stage magic restraining Ariel's real magic with some uh, prop rings, failing to properly execute a disappearing Ookla trick, and then he does Bullwinkle one better by actually pulling a rabbit out of a hat. Boy, is it a rabbit. But it's not just any ordinary rabbit. This is my favorite part of the episode. I laugh so hard. It's a giant mutant rabbit that has laser beam eyes. <laughs> Easter must be really weird in the post-apocalypse. <laughs> oh, I, I do want to point out, though, when they were in the haunted house area, that dummy comes down and it's like, and like, Flintor's like, what's this? What's this thing? And uh, Ariel's like, it's a dummy. It's supposed to make, it's supposed to make people laugh. It's like, or it's supposed to be funny. It's like I. It's like I don't think it's funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it failed. Yeah. Fell. So like the I love how the mutant buddy's like firing its laser eyes at Thunder, and he's like deflecting him with the sun sword, and then they 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 basically kick it like right through the wall and into like the moat outside, <laughs> and, it, and then it hops off. It's gone. It's just like I'm done. See ya. I didn't sign up for this. I'm out of here. <laughs> I gotta go make a left turn at Albuquerque. <laughs> No, I have to go find the Cadbury factory. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Take it easy. Oh, nobody's going to know that reference. So, at this point, Wayne Campbell joins the writing team and says, Hey, let's do the Scooby-Doo ending! Yeah, oh, pretty much. Yeah, it's revealed that Yondo is, I don't remember his name, but he was that villager that knew all about him. Go figure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very... Like, very Scooby-Doo, like, oh, it was blankety-blank all along. I think Ruby Spears, like, Joe Ruby and Ken Spears just has this addiction to hoax-revealed plots, so they were just, like, at the time, just like, no, no, have to have a hoax-revealed plot. Gotta, gotta get my hits. Because <laughs> there's a lot of cartoons they've done where, like, I, I'm currently working on a review for uh, the Donkey Kong Jr. cartoon for my YouTube site, and uh <laughs> And one of those episodes also randomly does it. Just randomly has, like, it's the gorilla ghost! Oh no, it's a guy in a suit! I'm like, you just couldn't resist it, could you guys? Yeah. You just you think they'd have gotten it. it out of their system with all those episodes of Fang Face. I hate that show. Mm. <laughs> yes, uh, so <laughs> random, random Scooby-Doo reveal. So, mercifully, we're just about at the end with the... Uh, with the fraud scholar now uh, getting his just desserts and our heroes 
riding off through the city, and the adventure continues. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Yeah, I, I feel like there's like three scripts that were written and shoved together for this plot. Like they had like one where it's like, okay, a wizard using stage magic. And then another one's like, okay, someone steals the sun sword and uses it against Thundar. And then the third one was like, someone makes their own sun sword and the uh, and it, the sun sword can't be used against it. It's like, these are all great plots separately, but when you shove them all together, you kind of get an unbalanced mess of an episode. Yeah. I agree with Pembroke. Um, this one uh, was not as good as uh, as the uh, as uh, the previous episode. Um, it yeah, they just it felt like they were trying to cram too much in, into this one. I mean, there's some really cool ideas, but that not enough time is given to them, and so it's like it feels like really like disjointed, and kind of rushed, and yeah. and the, also the 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 Scooby Dooish ending is kind of feels out of place on Thunder. It's what it really does. But overall, after all this time revisiting the series, is Thundar still mighty? Yes. I love this show. I unconditionally love this show. It's mm-hmm. my favorite show for Movie Spears. Um, I wouldn't say it's the best quality show for Movie Spears. I actually have to give that to their Superman show. That one's impressively well done quality-wise. But as far as just fun... Uh, and just overall enjoyable. I, yeah, Thundar's great. It's got so much atmosphere. Those backgrounds are amazing, and the characters are likable. Justin, how about you? Uh, I really enjoyed revisiting the show. It's like um, I was very curious to see if it would hold up because I was very fond of this cartoon. When I was growing up, and um, even though this the the one episode was a little bit weaker than the other, um, I really had a lot of fun, and uh, makes me really glad that uh, I. Uh, pre-ordered the uh, Blu-ray of uh, all the episodes uh, that's coming out uh, very shortly uh, from uh, WB through the Warner Archive. So, yep. It'll be that is correct. Re- it was just that I'm, I'm looking forward to watching other episodes and, and uh, revisiting the show when I when I finally get my hands on it. it it's it's a really fun revisit. I actually revisit, rewatched the entirety of it like fairly recently. Uh, being in Texas, we had that bad snowstorm that kind of uh, wasn't yeah. good. Uh, and uh, one of the things I did while stuck in the snowstorm, uh, snuck, stuck in a friend's house during that snowstorm, was we watched the entirety of Thundar. And it was a fun rewatch. But uh, yeah, I, 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 I love this show. Uh, though there is something that I don't know if they do this on the Blu-ray. I know they did this on the DVD release that something Warner did that really annoys me is at the end of the Thundar episodes on the DVD, they cut out the Ruby Spears logo and instead throw on the 90s-era Hanna-Barbera logo. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that feels deceitful because it it wasn't made by them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That they do that on the versions I purchased on YouTube as well. I so I, I think know. that's just the current master that exists. Probably. It, yeah. it, I just, I, I really don't like that. Because I know on the, even when it aired on a Cartoon Network, it would show the uh, Ruby Spears logo at the end. So I don't know. Uh-huh. It just, I, I know, I understand that. Because I mean, even the DVD box that says Hanna-Barbera collection on it. And I'm just like, look, I know Hanna-Barbera is a far bigger name than Ruby Spears. And that's what you're going for, Warner. 
but that still feels really deceitful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not, the uh, and, Blu-ray comes out this Tuesday officially, so hopefully maybe sometime later next week um, it'll get delivered. It's like depends on Amazon. Yeah. So. I love Hanna-Barbera. Ruby Spears might not be one of my favorite companies, but they still deserve credit for what they did. Also, in, mm-hmm. I also don't want this to continue being a thing because I would really hate for them to release a Fang Face DVD box set and strap Hanna-Barbera's name on that. Yeah. <laughs> They don't deserve that. Yeah. <laughs> and I was reading up why the show ended up getting canceled. It's kind of a shame. They basically moved out of the way because they wanted to uh, put in cartoons ba- uh, that were based off of their the popular Gary Marshall shows like Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley. And yeah. as you can probably guess, they didn't last very long. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, I, I remember there was an interview with uh, either Joe Ruby's or Ken Spears on the DVD box set to Thundar, where, uh, or maybe both of them, but one of them said that they think the violence was the reason why it got canceled, which, considering the time period, yeah, I, I could see that. Even if the violence is mostly mild in this show, I can understand why that would possibly be a concern, too. Yeah. It's a shame. This, uh, this show could have lasted a couple more seasons. Yeah, like it's like I said, I feel like it was a little, it, it was a little uh, ahead of its time, not by much, but just mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. Well, on that note, I think we've covered everything we needed to, including where people can find the cartoon today. So, uh, any parting thoughts, gentlemen? I highly, rec- I just want to say, I highly recommend people check this cartoon out. While it's obvious what its inspirations are, there really isn't. A, it still manages to be its own thing, and it, I can't think of any other show that's like this, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Or feel like this. It feels like it feels different from any other action sh- cartoon show I can think of. Yeah, I totally agree. It, it it's it, it definitely, of course, as you know, but has a lot of inspirations from other things. But it's a, it it's got its own feel. It, it's got the the animation is uh, really really good for the time. Uh, the stuff Kirby put in there. Uh, makes it have a unique look and uh, it's definitely worth checking out if you're uh, want to try to seek out some like actually good old uh, cartoons all right in that case uh, let's uh what about you james you got any final words on it uh, i think you guys summed it up pretty darn well I, all i can do is echo those sentiments this is definitely one of the stronger retro action adventure uh, prop cartoons you can f- get for your buck or, or in my case, two bucks an episode. <laughs> so with that being said, I'm James Irish. I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. I'm Justin Toner. And uh, until next time, we're off to restock the breakfast cereal. See ya! The Penny and James to the sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast! The preceding podcast is a co-production of the Mighty Monkey Corporation and Artificial Orange Studios. The theme song is written, composed, and performed by Shawn Michael Smith.